As a senior in high school at Fountain Valley School in Colorado Springs, I had an overwhelming desire to accumulate camping gear. I spent all the money I could find buying tents and backpack, hammock, compass, and a knife and a hatchet. It became an obsession. I think it represented freedom more than anything to me. The ability to live out of doors with just the elements was always one of my main goals. Since I was kept fairly strictly on campus, it's no wonder I worship escape to the wilderness, which was in eyesight at all times. The Rocky Mountains loomed in the virtual calling of my survival instincts over the FES classrooms and dormitories every morning. As I woke up, I could look out the room and see Pike's Peak in all its splendor. The dry breezes that swept through the campus would never let me forget the call of the wild. My heart was always up some mountain stream or path. It was hardly ever my studies. I constantly daydreamed about running away and living in the deep woods. I don't know why John wanted me to go with him for a ride up into the mountains, but we went one day all the way up to visit his Native American woman that was working on silver up in the mountains near Pike's Peak. Somewhere, I don't even know how to get there now, but it was a great trip. And it was a day out off, off campus. And when I came back to school, my English teacher, John Rauschenbusch, the dean of students, confided in me in private, what can we do about John Weedman? They were all where all the teachers were worried about John Weedman. I knew he was tripping on acid. That was why they couldn't reach him. But I didn't tell that part. But it was a concern of mine as well. And I was very flattered that he asked me in confidence what he could do for John Weedman. T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland, five different sections, all intertwined with my own meaning of life but I had no idea what my meaning of life was. Nor did I understand the wasteland, what that was about. But I knew my dean of students, John Rauschenbusch, wanted me to learn something, something, something that made sense. Just didn't make sense to me. Still to this day, it doesn't make sense either. But it is a poem. I was just as confused about the wasteland as I was about John and the confusion he had, why he wanted me to go with him three hours into the mountains to visit the Native American woman and come back to campus. I was confused about everything, and the wasteland had me more confused. I never really learned why my dean of students, John Rauschenbusch, wanted me to understand the wasteland. It was just all too confusing. I had to leave it behind. The macrobiotic program I was part of was said to take seven years to complete, completely take effect. My teacher told me it would take that long to just rehabilitate the physical being. 
to rid oneself of the impurities that had been digested since birth was a long process. It was said that to completely digest sugar and for it to completely remove from the blood circulation might take as long as two years, maybe more. You are what you eat, was the popular slogan. I was part of the new macrobiotic program for eight months, eating strict diet of grains and vegetables and was beginning to feel better than I ever had. My teacher credited my poor diet as the cause of all the problems in the world. Physical health is the only road to mental health, he would always remind us. We became evangelists of the cause of macrobiotics. After a period of time, the whole group of us that are together in the special dining room provided in the gymnasium had become totally disillusioned with the American diet. We had methods and readings which attributed most of the diseases and problems of the physical body to poor diet, including cancer. It was one of the few times in my life when I felt I had the world figured out and in control, and I wasn't alone. The whole group of us were feeling good. It was simple. Just eat well and balance yin and yang, and your life became in balance with the universe and your environment. <laughs> and your environment and yourself, it was a more complete version of my brother's egoless philosophy. It was also Buddhist and Taoist related, but Americanized to fit your needs. Except the excessive farting and one three-day cold, it was one of the healthiest years of my life. Mentally speaking, I don't think I was in the best shape because I did something very foolish. Driven by my obsession for the updated camping equipment and my dreams of one day living in the great outdoors, I went into town and one of the bi-weekly school trips and stole an expensive backpacker's sleeping bag from a sporting goods store. It was almost a game in, in my mind, although it upset my stomach to do it. I felt challenged, and I got away with the perfect crime. On the bus back to school, a few of my friends worshipped my loot. I stared out the window with a kind of sick feeling in my stomach. I re remember the time when I was 14 and I took a subway into New York City with my friend Bob. We challenged each other into stealing as much as possible, and on our way home on the subway, on that winter night, we exposed all the loot each of us had stolen. Balloons, candy bars, cap guns, and tricks, and cigarette lighters, practical jokes, and other worthless junk. There was the same sick feeling in my stomach, but also that materialistic surge of happiness. No one ever found out. The next day on campus, I, I hid the sleeping bag in the secret place a friend of mine, Phil, said he was going to sneak into the mountains for the afternoon and wondered if I would like to join them. It was a typical Colorado day, beautiful. Phil was a boarding student like me, allowed off campus on Tuesdays and Thursdays only. It was Wednesday and we wanted freedom. John was an ex-boarding student who became a day student so he could live off campus. He had a car which most boarding students weren't allowed to have. Phil approached him, and early that afternoon, Phil and I were hiding low in John's car on the way to the mountains. The little red Volkswagen flew down the dirt road toward the freedom, leaving a cloud of dust. We got sidetracked. We never made it to the mountains. 
John had a guitar in the back of his car that he couldn't play because the strings were too high off the neck. Since I played too, I knew how impossible it was to enjoy a guitar like that. I told John of a pawn shop that would trade him for a guitar that may be easier to play. John said he wanted to stop and see. The wheel turned and we detoured into Colorado Springs. I don't know why, but we parked right in front of the store where I was a thief the day before. As if possessed, I walked into the scene of the crime. I stole something again, this time a compact two-man year-round backpacker's tent. This time I wasn't so lucky. I got out of the store, but not much further. The store manager took a quick inventory and found a tent and a sleeping bag missing and called the cops. Meanwhile, I hid the tent in John's car and went over to the pawn shop where we were going to trade his guitar. When John and Phil saw me walking with his, his tent in my hand, they were in shock. They were in the store they didn't even see me take it. On our way to the pawn shop, John was nervous. Phil said no way anyone could have seen Gary take it because I was standing right next to him. I didn't even see him take it. He was wrong. I was pretty clever about being a thief, but not about making a getaway. John, Phil, and I walked pensively over to the pawn shop to exchange John's guitar. It was easier than I thought. I negotiated for John, and the man in the shop was more than easy to work with. And he liked John's guitar, which was steel strength. He was willing to trade it even, to our surprise, for one of his $30 nylon string guitars. We all left the shop happy. To see John happy was a nice feeling. It didn't happen too often. He was a manic depressive, and I felt glad to see him smile and gloat over his new guitar. As my foot hit the curb over the street, I looked up over the blue sky and across the mountains that stood over the Colorado Springs. Then I looked down the busy street and saw a cop on a motorcycle parked, talking to some pedestrians who were pointing in at John, Phil, and I as we walked toward John's VW. I didn't say anything, but I knew. I saw a cop pick up his radio as he walked us get into the car. Phil had a Colorado license, and he drove John in the back with his new guitar. We had driven about two blocks when suddenly cops appeared from every direction. They cut us off with two police cars in front, from behind another police car and two cops on foot. From the right, two motorcycle cops. We were completely cut off, trapped. A cop shouted at us, get out of the car. He stated clearly that they were looking for stolen goods, and if we didn't have them, we could go. I got out of the car. Phil got out. John refused. He stayed in the back of the BW, clinging to his new guitar. The cop asked him to stand aside, and he would search the car. John still wouldn't come out. The cop demanded John get out of the car. Nothing is going to happen if you didn't steal anything. The cop could tell John was frozen with fear and confusion. He extended his hand to help John out. John got out of the car slowly but turned and screamed, Don't touch my guitar! The cop ignored John and continued to open the guitar case. I don't know why, but John kept screaming until another cop came and grabbed him and told him to shut up. The cop didn't find anything in the guitar case but John's guitar. He found the tent under the back seat 
A few of the other cops gathered around. They all realized they had found only half of what they were looking for. There was a sleeping bag also reportedly stolen. Where was it? We said we didn't know. Of course, I knew. It was back at school. The cops immediately assumed there was a fourth thief somewhere, and he must have the sleeping bag I had stolen the day before. I heard them report back on the radio. The cops lined Phil and John and I up against the wall, searched us and found a few joints in Phil's pocket. Then they ushered us to a cop car where we got in and drove off to the station. The three of us looked at each other, the two cops in the front seat, three thieves in the back. I felt sick and I expected John and Phil to be extremely pissed off at me for getting them into such trouble, but they weren't. Phil didn't seem to care and John didn't seem to be thinking. I couldn't believe it was truly happening. The police station. We were mugshot and fingerprinted and put behind bars, all three of us in the same cell. I had quit smoking a few months before, but the pressure seemed so great, all I could think about was a cigarette. John gave me one, but we had no matches. He yelled and screamed, and finally the little sliding window on the door at the end of the hallway opened. We could see the face of a cop peering mercilessly through. I became a black slave in the early 1800s. I was caught stealing provisions from the warehouse en route of my escape. The penalty was death. A banjo, lonesome and brittle, strummed in my head. An old black lady wailed in my heart, begging the master to forgive my sins. Too late, death seemed to be my next acquaintance. When the cop briskly said, What do you want? My new friend, death, vanished before he reached me. The emptiness of my real life returned. Just some matches, Phil said, and looked at me with a smile. The cop opened the door and cautiously walked towards the cage we were in. He stood at a distance and cautiously handed a pack of matches through the bars with one hand resting on his gun. Phil looked at me again and almost laughed. He seemed to be really amused by, at the cop's actions. We all lit our cigarettes and the matches, and Phil tries to start a friendly conversation with the cop. How long are we in for? Phil said as he lightheartedly as possible. Long time, said the cop. Now give me back those matches. He turned and left, so Phil said, Nice day to you, too. The door closed, and we were alone again. I didn't care about the cop. I was a foolish thief, and I knew it. No music played in my head at all. I couldn't find anything romantic about my situation at all. I inhaled my first puff of a cigarette of three months. It tasted great. It was one of the few times or places a cigarette ever tasted good to me. It was the only good thing about the whole day. Pretty soon, a cop came in and unlocked the cell door and motioned Phil to come forward. Bye-bye, guys. He waved. He left, ushered by a cop that carried a gun that was loaded with a bullet to preserve law and order. I had to chuckle at Phil's wise guy attitude. He was keeping his gun loaded, too. John and I were alone. We both tried to smile, but it only halfway worked. Suddenly, we both felt defiant. John thought it would be a good idea to chant and meditate. So we did it for a few minutes. It seemed to help our morale a little. After that, we sang a song of Dave Crosby's first solo album. Everybody's singing, the music is love. What 
are their names and in what do they live. I'd like to ride, ride over this afternoon and give them a piece of my mind about peace for mankind. Peace is not an awful lot to ask. We felt better it was us against the world. Music almost always started to swell to finally in my head. And then I remembered the us was in the wrong and the world was in the right. <laughs>